0: The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. All right, we are going to go ahead and get started. Thanks for being here. We're going to be, uh, we're going to be together tonight and tomorrow night. Um, and uh, I, I want to, as we begin tonight, kind of frame where we're going to be going. Um, we've tried to uh, create as much interaction as possible um, both tonight and then tomorrow night as well. Uh, tonight I'll be teaching, kind of going back and forth between me teaching and then um, some discussions at your tables. I'll tell you why about that in just a minute. Um, tomorrow night we're actually going to have a panel up here uh, of people representing a pretty broad spectrum of varying vocations and jobs uh, w- within our church um, and have them interact over, uh, over several questions that, that we've kind of prepared. And um, e- even I think there's going to be opportunity to turn some some questions in tonight. Uh, But we want to take some time tomorrow night to interact over those questions and get a broad spectrum of voices speaking into that. Um, Tonight, I'm going to try to establish for us a a common theology of what work is, what vocation is, what culture is, um, trying to connect kind of big ideas that we see in Scripture um, to to what most of you spent most of today doing. Um, uh, Tonight, I'm going to talk through basically three big ideas tonight, and, and between each of those three. we will spend some time at your tables talking. The reason we're going to do that um, is I have almost... I've never made a decent cup of coffee in my life. Um, And so if I'm going to talk in any sort of informed way about what does it mean uh, to be a Christian who is a barista, um, I'm going to have to rely completely on someone else's knowledge. And in this room is represented all manner of vocations and jobs um, and and ways in which you spend your time and your days. Um, And I have zero experience in almost all of them. I've worked in retail, I've worked as a, a, as a consultant doing tech stuff, and I've done restaurant work, and I wasn't really good at any of those. So, um, so I, I should not be the one kind of framing what does this, this stuff look like on the ground. And so in order to, to, to begin to take these ideas and put feet on them, um, that's why, that's why you're, gonna, you're gonna spend time talking about these things, um, wrestling with these things um, at the table um, in which you're sitting. Um, and, and so we're going to begin tonight, not with me lecturing, um, I'm going to pray here, um, and then uh, we're going to start with kind of an open round of questions, just so every table can um, can take a few minutes to get to know one another. Um, we're on a tight schedule, though, so um, each time we break out for questions, you're going to have 10 minutes um, to talk about these things, so um, if, if you just need to be ready to go, get it out, and get around the table as quickly as you can, because we'll have about 10 minutes to get through um, each set of questions when we break out. Got it? Deal. So tonight's gonna to be fast-moving, exciting, maybe, thrilling, probably, um, and uh, and we'll go from there. So let me pray, and then we'll move into round one of questions. So God, we uh, we confess that that for many of us in this room, we haven't thought rightly about the, the, the gift of work, of what it means to, to wield the um, the gifts and the talents and the context and the situations. Um, and the money and the, the, the people around us um, in ways that align with who you are and what you're doing in the world. Um, and, and oftentimes, God, we've actually begun to wield those things to our own ends for um, simply our own uh, own good and not the flourishing of other people and not the glory of your name. And so God, I pray that tonight you would come and, and reframe for us what it is that we do most of our days. Um, help us to think clearly about these things. Help us to think biblically about these things Um, And, God, I pray that um, that we would be be sent out of here tonight and tomorrow night, and we'd be better, um, more committed to the varying callings that you've placed in our lives, Um, committed to the work itself, committed to, um, if we're a barista, making the best coffee imaginable, if if we work um, in insurance, to being really, really good at serving people in the insurance industry. Whatever industry is represented in this room, God, whatever callings are represented in this room, Um, God, I pray that we would pursue these things as unto you. Um, So God, be with us and open our eyes to see um, where work and faith and the gospel and all these things begin to intersect and be shaped by um, what you've done for us in Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. So round one of questions, um, uh, we're really, the, the first question is, what do you do all day? This is not simply the question, hey, what is your job title? Um, we, we actually want you to say, hey, here's actually what I do. Oftentimes I'll meet with people. I'll say, hey, what, what do you do? What, what's, um, what, what, what's your job? What, what, are you a stay-at-home mom? Do you, where, where do you work? What, what's going on? Um, and they'll just say the title um, as if everyone knows exactly what that means. Um, when in reality, most of us, well, maybe y'all are smarter. I'm not gonna, I, I have no idea what a lot of times what somebody does all day. So, so if somebody works in the financial industry, I've, I don't know what that means. I don't know what they do. To me, that's just like spreadsheets. So, so what... What, what actually do you do during the day? If, if you have kind of a random schedule, you do different things every day, pick one. Um, and, then, and then say, hey, and every day is different. Um, so that's the first question. Um, the second question is, what's the favorite part of what you do? Um, third is, what's the most challenging part of what you do? You have 10 minutes. Go. All right. So that was 10 minutes-ish. All right. Did you get all the way around your table? Who won? Sir Riley took the whole time. Um, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, And and I hope that you gained insight into what people at your table are doing. um, And uh, at least what they enjoy. Maybe what led them into that particular vocation and calling. Um, I want to begin the material, the theology discussion about, about the nature of work, with, with presenting us with um, what I think is one of the biggest problems um, or challenges to us understanding the nature of our work, to us understanding the nature of vocation. And I would even argue one of the biggest challenges for us to understand rightly the nature of discipleship. Um, it, 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 uh, it has origins in, in, in numerous thinkers and numerous ways of thinking, um, but it's the predominant view within within Western culture, and it's been so for quite some time. And it's a view that's dominated the church and I think has stunted the church's ability, um, and by church I mean the church at large, has stunted the church's um, ability to really speak into these topics and speak well into these topics. Um, And it's what I'll just call simply the sacred-secular divide. Um, If you're familiar with a writer named Francis Schaeffer, um, Francis Schaeffer uh, basically built his entire writing career, trying to dispel this separation. Um, the secular, secular-sacred divide is essentially a way of viewing the world that says there are um, sacred callings, there are holy callings, there are callings um, that align with um, the purposes of God or the kingdom of God on the earth, and those are things like pastors. Um, and so you can see where pastors might want to maintain this, because it, it, it makes me feel very, very important compared to all of you. I'm very sacred, I'm very holy, the rest of you did what? Anyway, so, um, so, so there's, there's, this divide that exists in the world that somehow, um, Men or women who are called into a kind of vocational ministry, we call it vocational ministry, um, who, who have the calling, um, to, to, uh, spend their lives on the mission field, to spend their lives pastoring churches, to spend their lives, um, working within churches, um, they have a, sa- a sacred calling, and that's a holy calling, and that's a special calling, and that is what God is doing on the earth, is, is taking pastors, um, and, 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 Taking men and women, um, and they're working, um, very much vocationally in ministry, in, um, sacred callings. And everything else is secular. Um, and other callings, other vocations, um, if you make a cup of coffee, if you start a business, if you, um, manage people, um, that's a secular calling. Does not really have, um, it, it may be valuable, particularly insofar as, as you earn a paycheck and you help provide for the sacred people, um, who, who are, are doing what they're doing. Um, but, but, um, insofar as it actually is, is somehow accomplishing the actual work of God in the world, um, that's not true. That, that, this is a secular job, um, and I have a sacred job, um, and, and it's a way of dividing the world. It's actually um, completely unbiblical. <laughs> there's there's no warrant for that in Scripture at all. But the problem is, is it begins to um, feed into our notions, our understanding of what work is. It makes us. Um, it, it does a couple of different things. I think it can lead to an idea about our day-to-day work um, that, that that can sometimes begin to feel meaningless. Um, I, I've had conversations with people in our church who sat down with me and said, hey, I want to do something that's really meaningful with my life. Um, so I'm thinking about leaving whatever industry they're in so I can go and, and go to seminary or go get training so I can become a pastor somewhere. Um, and, and, and it's this, this wrong-headed idea. And again, that, that's not speaking into whether or not they should... That they should pursue that calling. But if the foundation of them wanting to pursue that calling is this, this wrong-headed idea that says, hey, the, the work I'm currently doing from 9 to 5, working at this bank, is pretty much meaningless... It's not actually accomplishing anything of, of, of God's real purposes in the world. I want to be a part of what God's doing. If I'm going to be a part of what God's doing, um, then I've got to go get a seminary degree. I've got to go um, buy a one-way ticket to, um, to some country and become a missionary. I've got to become a pastor. I've got to become a, a, a counselor. I've got to do something like that in order for my work to actually have meaning. And so I think this divide does a number of things that are, that are bad. One of them is it begins to create this, this idea that your work Um, To the extent that it doesn't tie in directly with evangelism, tie in directly with pastoring churches, that somehow your work is meaningless. It also creates an interesting divide, um, a a troubling divide, in that it it can begin to separate um, kind of a biblical understanding of norms and laws and ethics and morality and it says that has to do with the sacred domain. Um, I, I'm going to work in the secular domain, and I'm going I'm to live my life however I want. I'm going to pursue whatever ends I'm supposed to pursue and that I think I'm supposed to pursue in this job, whether or not they conflict with what, what God has said my life is supposed to be about. But One of the most interesting facts about the, the whole Enron debacle is that some of the key players in that entire fiasco were, were outspoken and devoted Christians. Um, they, they'd simply separated their life um, very, very neatly into sacred dimensions and secular dimensions. So, so they went to church, they prayed, they raised their family. All of that had to do with God. All of that had to do with morality and religion. But what they were doing with, with 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 accounting, what they were doing with actual with actual numbers in their job, were driven by a completely different set of values. And so what you begin to get is a separation of values and a separation in the way that we that we live our lives. Um, and I want to I go ahead and dispel this tonight. We're going to begin with um, basically the, the bottom line assumption that that division is a, is a superficial one. It's one that we've invented and imposed on the Bible. Um, and it's not there. It's simply not there. Um, I, I want to make the case tonight, um, particularly here in the beginning, that whatever work you've been called to do, and some of you are called to do work that you're not getting paid for. Um, my, my wife until recently was a stay-at-home mom. That is a vocation. That is very much work. It's work that would... Um, I've, I've tried to do that several times and it, um, when she goes out of town, and it's way harder than what I do. Um, uh, that, that, so so that, that whatever work you happen to do, whatever it is that you just describe for your table, um, that you do day in and day out, short of it being illegal, short of it being... Um, <laughs> and if that happened at your table, I'd, don't tell me. Um, <clears throat> But whatever it is actually has very much as has meaning, is attached to very much what God is doing in the world. It's sacred. It is holy. Whether it's ministry or not, whatever your vocation is, um, it, it is the way that God has, has positioned you in our city and positioned you in the world for his purposes. In whatever industry, whatever, uh, whatever domain that happens to be in. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Genesis chapter 2. Sorry, we're actually going to back up and go to Genesis chapter one. In Genesis chapter one, God's um, up to verse twenty-four or twenty-five. Um, God's created the world. He's created animals. He's taken something that was formless and void. He's taken um, raw materials. He's he spoke first. He spoke them, those things into being, and then he begins to command them and begin to order them in such a way that they would bear fruit, that they would flourish. And then at the, at the very end of that line, verse, in beginning of verse 26, he says, let God, then God said, let, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. I and mean, I want you to jump down with me um, to verse 5 of chapter 2. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and the mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. So if you're looking for gold, go to (coughs) Havilah. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And I want us to stop there. Um, In the text that we just saw, God's created the world, uh, but he hasn't finished it. He's created something good. He's created um, something that that, um, he he confirms again and again and again throughout the whole creative process, saying this is good, this is good, this is good, this is very good. And in the midst of that world, he he creates a garden. And then in the middle of that garden, he, he places every resource necessary for flourishing and for life. And then in the midst of that, he places a man and a woman I'm not going to drive, man, and a woman. There's just a person. A nondescript, gender, non-identified person there. So, that's just a person. There's two people there. Um, he, he places um, them in the garden, and he gives them a set of callings. Um, a, a set of vocations. And, and I want us to look at those, because I believe that those are foundational, um, not just for Adam and Eve, but they define what does it mean to be human. What are we to be about Be about making better clips for shirts, someone should pursue that vocation. There's money to be had. <laughs> ha. Okay. Um, and, and so the, the question then becomes um, so, so th- these, <laughs> back on track, these vocations answer the question what does it mean to be human? Um, the first thing that we saw is that God created man and woman in his image. So that man and woman are created to bear the image of God. Um, If you've been through our Foundations class, you've heard this. But there's all kinds of debate throughout the history of the church. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? What does it mean um, that that we bear His image? And there's been um, endless debate about what that means. And I think it's actually um, can be distilled distilled down rather simply. Augustine argued for this. John Calvin argued for this. Um, But the essential nature of what does it mean to bear the image of God, it it means that, well, you're supposed to look like Him. You're supposed to reflect into the world the nature and the character of God. And so the very first thing, that I, I would say a, a first order calling of every single human being on this earth, no matter what it is that you did today, it is simply this. That other human beings, the, the universe at large, should be able to look at us and see something of the nature and the character of God. Um, this, this fundamentally happens, I, I believe, by faith as we trust in God, as we attribute to Him, um, rightly attribute to Him, His character, His nature, His goodness, His beauty, His glory, His wisdom, Um, as we trust that that He is wise, as we trust that He is good, as we trust um, that He is beautiful, that we live accordingly, We, 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 we live out the implications of that in our lives, obeying Him, trusting Him, delighting in Him, pursuing Him, speaking of Him. And so at the, at the foundation of what it means to be human, it means that we are those who love and trust and delight in and therefore obey God. That's foundation. That is a first order calling. That is a calling that is universal. That is a calling that is applicable to every single man, woman, and child. That is what you were made to do. Um, there's a second calling here. I mean, she says, be fruitful and multiply. Um, and, and this be fruitful and multiply is, a, is, again, it is a calling. It is um, one of the things that we are to do as human beings. Um, and this is, um, this is accomplished in, in two different ways. Um, first, and, and foundationally here in the garden, it's as God takes a man and a woman and he joins them together in covenant. And then they bear the fruit of that covenant. Um, and they're naked and unashamed and all the fun stuff um, in chapter 2. And, and, and they bear the fruit of that covenant. But by forming families where more image bearers, more, um, more people who reflect, love, delight in God are born, raised up, discipled, and then sent out to start their own covenant families. But, but there's, there's a second way in which this second vocation is carried out. Um, one of the things that has shifted from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant is that God, um, God has called us and sent us into the world to, to bear witness to who He is Um, by by speaking of who he is, by declaring what he's done for us in Jesus, by by being as what Paul calls ministers of reconciliation, those who speak to others of who God is and what God has done, and calling them to come and to believe in him and to trust him and to love him. Um, and, And as he does that, he creates for himself, he adopts for himself children, making them image bearers as well. Um, And so the second calling that we see in this is that we're to be fruitful and multiply. Jesus says it in the form of go and make disciples. Um, And if you have children, your fundamental calling as a parent is to disciple them. That is a vocation. That is a calling on your life. If He has given you the gift of children, it is to raise them up to know and fear and to delight in God. But there's a third calling here. He he says, um, and it was the last verse we read, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Um, This is what He was put on earth to do. He's placed in the middle of the garden. Um, In the middle of the garden, he's just described rivers, he's just described trees, he's just described everything that's necessary um, uh, for for flourishing, for life, for the formation of culture. And what he commands Adam and Eve to do is to work the ground and to keep the ground. Um, Interesting little, uh, little tidbit about that phrase, work it and keep it. It's only used one other place in the entire Bible. And it's to describe the work of the priests in the temple. They were placed in the temple to work it and to keep it. That was their act of worship. So um, worship is not simply something we do here on Sundays. It's not simply the the songs or the liturgy that we walk through. It is the work of your life to, to work this earth and to keep it. That is worship. And so God places Adam and Eve in the garden. He commands them to work it and to keep it. In um, another part of the text that we read, they're they're co- they're commanded to subdue the earth. Um, they're, they're commanded to to rule over the earth. Um, that they're, they're to take all of these raw materials that, that are embedded in the earth and to begin to form them and to begin to organize them and to begin to make them um, lead to flourishing. Which is exactly what God does, right? In Genesis 1, he speaks into existence everything that is. But as you walk through the days, in Genesis chapter 1, he takes all of these raw materials and he begins to organize them and form them and commission them with jobs to do. He does it with the trees. He does it with the birds of the air. He does it with the swarming things in the oceans, which is one of my favorite phrases ever, the things that swarm in the water. He he forms them, he, he organizes them, and he tells them to do things, like swarm or make little swarmers. Like he, he, he gives them jobs. And this is exactly what he does for us. He says, take the raw materials of this creation. And I want you to begin to organize it. I want you to begin to structure it. I want you to begin to build, build with it. I want you to take grapes, which are amazing. And I want you to grow lots of them. And then I want you to smash them and let them age and ferment and create wine. Organize it. Make it flourish. Make it better. Wine is better than grape juice, which is better than grapes. Right? Um, he, he, he commands people to, t- to take, uh, and here's where I'm starting to get into stuff I don't know, take stuff and mix it up and make concrete. And then use that concrete to build buildings. And then dig for ore and refine it and make metal and, and, and cause metal to go up. So start using your brains to think about things like math and, and, and spreadsheet, Excel spreadsheets. Glory! And, and to take, to take these kinds of things and begin to structure them and to begin to organize them so, so that these principles of math or these raw materials in the earth or the fruit that's growing on the vine is now being utilized, um, utilized not just, not just for its own sake, but utilized in such a way that it leads to more flourishing. And so now, instead of just a garden, we're picking fruit off of trees. Man, God's commission, God's purpose for humanity, bearing His image by trusting Him, loving Him, obeying Him, being fruitful and multiplying, building families, is we now then go put our hands to work in the midst of the world, um, uh, using our minds, using our hands, using the gifts that God's given us, and to, to wield the raw materials of creation, that it might lead to further and further and further flourishing. In other words, that we might build a culture, a culture, a city, businesses, food, wine, all of it, working together. And as we do that, bearing his image, we create something that is flooded with beauty and goodness and glory. This is what it means to be human. This is what it means to bear the image of God. This is what you were made for. Um... But one of, the, one of the questions that is a really foundational question of this is, what is vocation? I mean, here's, here, here's the definition um, I want to give um, for what vocation actually is. A vocation is the way or the ways that God has commanded you to wield your particular life for the flourishing of humanity. That's what it is. Uh, sometimes, oftentimes, that plays itself out in a particular job where you get paid for it. Sometimes that plays itself out in in a network of relationships where you're wielding the gifts that God's given you, you're wielding the life that God's given you for the flourishing of other people. One simple, maybe far more simple way to, to say this, it is in the providence of God, it is simply the calling to love other people, but to do so in tangible ways. One of the things that Martin Luther would say, and I'll end with this and we'll move into our second round of questions. Um, he, he asks the question, how does God provide milk? But we believe that God provides all things, right? So if, 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 there's a, um, if, there's a, if you're going to use milk in your bowl of cereal tomorrow morning, um, we're out of Golden Grahams, so I won't be using milk tomorrow morning for Golden Grahams. But if you use milk to pour it, God provided that milk. How did it get there? I mean, he didn't just snap his fingers and make it appear. No, he wielded the gifts of other people to get that milk onto your kitchen counter. Um, Luther makes the observation that he, um, he used the milkmaid. The milkmaid is the means of the providence of God. But think about that in our day. The trucks, the farmers, um, the, 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 the grass that had to be grown, um, the, the, the people who run the grocery stores and manage it, um, the, the guy who restocks the shelves, all of those are, are the providential means by which God is bringing to your kitchen counter tomorrow a glass of milk. And don't dismiss that. That is the love of God for you. And and those people, whether they know it or not, are are called to wield their particular jobs and vocations that that you might enjoy the love of God in the form of a glass of milk. This is what your job is. This is what your vocation is. So I just want us to move now into 10 minutes of questions. Um, The questions should be up here. Uh, They're simply questions about, as you think about what you do day in and day out, Um, What do you find particularly meaningful, and where do you struggle to find meaning in your work? (laughs) All right, here we go. So so the model established for us in Genesis 1 and 2 is that we're meant to to know God, to trust God, to love God, to walk with God, to obey God, um, to to find ultimately our identity and our meaning in who He is uh, and who He's revealed Himself to be. And then in the light of that, to, to, to begin to wield that, that knowledge, to wield that vision of who God is um, as, we, as we use the gifts that he's given us, as we use the strengths that he's given us, as, as, he uses the, as we use the circumstances um, that he's placed us in the midst of, um, whether it's a garden or it's the middle of a bank or it's the middle of, uh, of the opportunity maybe to start a new business, whatever those things might be, um, or in the middle of a home, uh, whatever the, wherever you happen to find yourself, with whatever gifts God has hardwired you with, Um, to then to begin to put your life to work um, for the flourishing of the world. Um, uh, A sister came up and mentioned to me, hey, it's not just humanity, it's also also creation itself um, that we're to see flourish. And I think that's that's spot on. Um, We want to see not just humanity flourish, but the whole world flourish. Um, We we have been given a stewardship of creation itself. And so uh, that's what we're created to do, to see God and worship Him with with eyes and, and a life oriented towards um, this God who has spoken to us and created us, and then with that orientation, that trust, that love, uh, then to begin to wield our lives um, for the flourishing uh, of the world. Um, But as we all know, a problem arises in Genesis chapter 3. But before we get to that particular problem, I want to maybe lead us into that problem by, by thinking through a couple of the implications of this definition of vocation. Um, It it means that your vocation, that the primary purpose of your vocation is not so that you might find pleasure and fulfillment. This definition of vocation means that our lives are primarily to be oriented around serving others. Now that's not the same thing as saying that you should not find pleasure or fulfillment in the work that you're called to do. It's simply to say that's not the driving motivation behind it. Um, uh, Another implication of this is that uh, the driving motivation of your work, the thing that um, informs and defines your vocation, is not simply that you get paid or that you make as much money as humanly possible. Now please note, that's not the same thing as saying that you should not get paid for for the work that you do. It's simply to say that the the real value of what you're called to do, um, and and I would say this this flies in the face of um, the predominant ethos of our culture... The value of what you do cannot be determined, is not determined, by the size of the paycheck that you receive from it. The two are simply unrelated. Um, There are school teachers who make far less um, than a doctor, and there are um, stay-at-home moms or dads that make far less than both of them. But all of them are fulfilling a sacred vocation within the, within the purposes of God on the earth. That The value is found in bearing the image of God and then wielding their lives to serve other people, to love other people, not in whether or not they get paid for it. Again, don't, don't mishear me. There's nothing wrong at all with getting paid. And somebody somewhere has got to get paid. So, um, and, 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 But, but um, oftentimes in, in the culture that we live, the determining factor about the value of what you do um, is, 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 the culture says, it's reflected in the, in the number on the paycheck that you get or your direct deposit, maybe you'll get a paycheck, um, that, that you see in your bank account at the end of the day. And that's simply not a biblical vision of vocation. Okay? Um, now, now, given that, um, we, we all know a problem arises in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, a serpent comes and he lies to, to, to Eve. Um, he deceives Adam and Eve. And in so doing, um, he, he creates absolute mass chaos. But men and women don't stop doing what they were created to do. And one of the things I, wa- I want to lay out for you is that man and woman always do these things. That they always are fruitful and multiply. They always subdue the earth, work it, keep it, organize it, build cultures, build cities... And they always, either, either in faithfulness or in unfaithfulness, accurately or inaccurately bear the image of God. That never stops. But what changes in Genesis chapter 3 is not um, the, the, what, the calling of what it means to be human and to do these activities, but what changes is our fundamental orientation towards God, which then changes the character or the way that we do those things. So in Genesis chapter 3, this man and woman who were created to trust God, love God, delight in God, know that he is good and that he is for them, are lied to. And the fundamental lie the serpent tells them, he tells them two. is first that God is keeping something good from you. In other words, God's not to be trusted. He's not, um, he's not he, he, there's something good that, that you could have and he doesn't want you to have it. He's keeping something from you. And he sowed the lie that we believe, that many of us still believe up to this day, struggle and fight against even to this day, that God is not for us. That God does not wish our best. That when he commands us to live in a particular way, that he's just like an overly stern father saying no too much, like I was to my daughter this afternoon. Just saying no, 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 no. Not intentionally thinking through, hey, that these no's are for your good. And we begin to think that the God is somehow a killjoy, keeping great, good, great goods from us. But he doesn't want us to be happy. He doesn't want us to find fulfillment. He doesn't want us to have joy. He's keeping them from us. Um, The second lie that was told is is, um, that that they're they're told to take this this fruit from this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they will be like God, knowing good from evil. Now, um, our understanding of the word knowing almost always carries with it um, merely kind of an intellectual sort of knowledge. So um, oftentimes that story is read as um, there's information that's being kept from them, and if they'll eat that, um, that piece of fruit, they'll gain access to that information. That's not what that phrase traditionally means. Knowing good from evil um, has in it this this idea of determining good and evil. That's why um, the 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 serpent uses the lie: "You'll be like God, knowing good from evil, determining good from evil. You'll set before you'll set for yourself what is right and what is wrong, what is beautiful and what is ugly, what is true and what is false. You will no longer be dependent on God for those things." And so the fundamental lie that gets established in Genesis 3 is God's not to be trusted, and you can be your own God. You can build your own kingdom. You can determine what the world is supposed to look like on your own. But here's again the thing. Man and woman did not stop doing what men and women do. They made families they, they took the raw materials of creation and built cities and, and, and created art and created culture. But now they did so not as those who trust God, not as those who worship God and love God, but not doing those things to the ends that they were created to do them, namely um, to, to glorify God and, and to see the world flourish. Now they've done it for themselves. There's a fatal turn that happens in Genesis chapter 3 that Paul describes beautifully, actually terrifyingly, um, between Romans 1.18 um, through 3.20. And it's the turn in. Rather than our face being lifted to see God, love God, and reflect Him in the world through the work that we do. Um, now instead, but we worship ourselves, we worship created things, we're trying to find our identity and our hope and our meaning, in, in not in God, and that, that then frees us to work for the sake of other people, but now in the work that we do. So that our identity is now attached to um, our work. Our righteousness is now attached to our work. Our fulfillment is now to be found not in our identity that God has given us, that he's declared over us, but it's to be found in the work that we do in our hands. And so we see now a world, a culture, that reflects what happens. And for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years, men and women, rather than lifting their gaze and finding their identity in God and their hope in God and their righteousness in God and and everything that they are in God and then being free to work for the sake of others, they've now worked for their own sake. And so this is where the paycheck becomes the chief end. It's where the the idea that if if, if I'm not fulfilled and happy and and having all of my needs met in the job that I do, um, that I'm not going to do that job anymore. This endless cycle of trying to find the perfect job that will meet all of my needs and make me perfectly happy. The, the, The constant striving to achieve, stepping on other people along the way, doing whatever it takes to crawl up the ladder to elevate yourself. that The turn in, fatally marred and corrupted, the thing that all human beings will always do, which is we'll always be saying something about the nature of God. We will always be fruitful and multiply. We'll form families and tribes. um, And and we're going to take the raw materials of creation and we're going to subdue them. Now what that means for us as we sit in this room, in this century, I'm no longer in a garden, is that each and, every, each and every one of us, in the work that we've been called to, are faced with temptations. Fundamental temptations to find our identity, to find our hope in the job that, you're called, that, that you find yourself in right now. Uh, the temptation to um, use your job simply to further your own kingdom or your own glory or your own name. Um, uh, the, the temptation to think that somehow if I could just find the right job, if I could just find the right vocation, if I could just work for the right company or get to the right position in that company, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be fulfilled. Um, then I'll be satisfied. And, and these things to be, be, begin to enslave us. They begin to um, shape and determine our lives in ways that are absolutely destructive. And rather than wielding the gifts that God's given us and wielding the circumstances that God's given us, For the sake of others. We wield them for ourselves. We wield them in slavery um, to idolatry. We wield them in slavery to things that are not God. And we look for things that only God can provide. um, In places that can never provide them. And we're never meant to. But we take good things um, good things like a, a position in, in a company. Uh, good things like a talent or a particular keen eye for, for, for design, say, if you're in the design industry. Or a particular gift that God's given you with, with handling numbers. We take gifts like that, strengths like that, and rather than wielding them so that someone else can flourish, wielding them so that our world gets better, wielding them so, so, so that other people are provided for, we wield them to make much of ourselves. We wield them to build ourselves up. We wield them um, to, 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 to try to grab from those things, things that can never be provided from those things. Because they were only always meant to be found in God and God alone. So, so that, that actually plays into our lives personally, but also expresses itself Culturally. Um, uh, what we look at as we look at the world we're in is, is a world in which God's common grace is at work. He's doing all kinds of beautiful and good and glorious things everywhere. Um, but but every culture, it's not, just, it's, not just, it's not just people that are bent in. Entire industries slowly are, are, are shaped by these same temptations to bend in. In other words, they take on cultural forms um, within different industries and within different worlds. Um, so so um, I, I had a lengthy conversation with... Um, with a doctor who's a friend of mine. And he was um, expressing to me incredible amounts of frustration. I'm working for a large kind of uh, very corporate, very, very, uh, very. I don't, know how, I don't know the words to use because I'm not in the medical industry, but everything's controlled. And he was talking to me that he has, um, when he goes in to see a patient, they've actually said, hey, you have, you have six minutes to get in and get out. Like, you have this amount of time. If they need counsel, if they need uh, whatever else they need, you don't relate to them as a human being. You've got to rubber stamp it. You've got to get in and out. They're tracking times. They're tracking when they're in and out. Um, if, they don't, if they don't get enough tests run, they get in trouble. Like, there's all kinds of things happening um, that are being, uh, being just restrictive and directive and keeping him. And his, his biggest complaint in the whole thing was, I don't get to treat people as human beings. I, got, I became a doctor because I liked science. I liked medicine. But I wanted to work with people. I wanted to meet people in a time of need. I wanted to meet people when they're hurting and actually not just, not just treat them medically, but treat them as a person. And I'm not allowed to do that anymore. And in the end, it's expressing a certain set of values that are turned in, that don't reflect the glory and the nature and the goodness of God. And then I've so shaped and determined the way that medicine, what was practiced, I mean, it wasn't in Colorado. Um, the way that medicine was practiced for this man as a doctor, that, that he couldn't love people, he couldn't wield his gifts in such a way that it led to the flourishing of the people in front of him, at least not how he wanted to. Um, so so these, these idolatries, these temptations, these, these constant turns in to worship ourselves or to wield our gifts for ourselves, they're not just personal, they're also cultural. They also actually take root within particular industries. And then a really interesting experiment to do is to think about how our own temptations, our own tendencies. So, so some of us struggle with a need to control things. Some of us struggle with a need for approval. Some of us struggle with with a need for glory or honor. Some of us struggle for a need for just comfort. Um, how, how how those desires, the, those idols, that those um, needs that we want to find met somewhere other than in God, will oftentimes lead us into industries that feed them. Does that make sense? Um, and so one of the interesting observations i 've made um, as I work with church planters, and I am one, so everything i 'm about to say is, is about me as well, is, is they seem to be plagued by this constant need for approval, that they want to be seen as someone who has accomplished something who 's done something well, who 's respected and honored and, and where else, but in church planting can you find i mean there 's a lot of places you can find it, um, where we chase after this idol, this need to be approved of. Um, and, and these two things go hand in hand. The, the temptation of the church is, oh, look at the good pastor pastor kid. I mean, how many times was I told that growing up? Oh, this guy's going to be a pastor. Pat him on the back, and, and, and I received my wonderful nourishment of approval. Well, now I'm a church planner. <laughs> and I love it when you pat me on the back after tonight. <laughs> and you say, that was great, Brian. Oh, yes, thank you. This, this, is, this is the way these things work is we love things, we search for things, but we refuse to go to God to find them. And so we chase after them in our particular vocations. And if we don't receive them there, we despair, or we become incredibly dissatisfied and go somewhere else to find them. Or we, we get them there, and we simply just keep driving into those careers to have those needs met. So, so what I want to do now is I want us to break out for our next set of questions. Um, And and, and there are questions that that begin to cycle around this kind of fundamental idea. Where do you find yourself personally struggling to to find things in your job, find things in your work that you were never supposed to find there, that you're always supposed to find in God? And, And then go here. Where does that lead you behaviorally? Where does that cause you to behave in ways that don't honor God, don't reflect the nature and the character of how God is? Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's just this constant sense that you're unsettled or unhappy where you are. I don't know what that is for you in your particular um, circumstances, but think through those things as well. And then the last question, I want you to just, uh, maybe just begin to bounce around at your table. And we take a, a couple of extra minutes um, during this session. Is in the particular industry that you're in, um, the vocation that you're in, the company that you're in, how do you see these things kind of playing out or reflected in the way that your industry or your company or your home wherever you are operates okay your sin will destroy you but you can talk about it later alright <laughs> so sorry um, here, here's what we're going to do I'm going to I want to do some review and then next next week we're going to not next week tomorrow night we're going to come back Um, We'll take some time on the front end to to, to think about um, the the, the final piece bringing in. How does the gospel actually restore um, us to these vocations in ways that do honor God and reflect God's character? We'll spend a little bit of time doing that um, and a little bit of time talking about that at our tables. And then we'll spend um, the bulk of tomorrow night with a panel um, working out these things in varying vocations um, in front of all of you, which will be very, very entertaining and fun. Um, but, but I, I, I want to begin with this I want to end tonight with two quotes one is from Tim Keller we, we've got a ton of these books um, on that back table um, on sale Th- this is the best thing I've ever read on, on faith and work um, how our, the, the gospel shapes the work that we do I want to encourage if you if you've never read this please read it it is um, fantastic and the first quote is coming from this book the, the second quote is actually not directly from that but he quotes it extensively in that book Um, Here's here's what Tim Keller says. That the material creation was made by God to be developed, cultivated, and cared for in an endless number of ways through human labor. But even the simplest of these ways is important. Without them all, human life cannot flourish. There is a summary of what our work is for. We're made to reflect the glory of God and then to put our lives to work within this creation to see um, all of humanity, all of creation flourish as we wield those gifts for the good of other people and the good um, of the world. And one of the, um, one of the implications of that is that your work really does matter. The quality of your work really does matter. If you're an accountant, you should be the best accountant imaginable. If you're an entrepreneur, you should be the best entrepreneur. Yeah, I guess you can't, you, you gotta do something if you're an entrepreneur. You should, whatever you do, you should do it really, really well. Um, uh, this last quote that I'll end with before I pray from Dorothy Sayers If you are a chair maker, you should make the best chairs imaginable. And so this is from Dorothy Sayers, a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, um, phenomenal thinker um, on this topic particularly. In nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. She's allowed work and religion to become separate departments and is astonished to find that as a result, as, as a result the secular work of the world is turned to purely selfish and destructive ends, and that the greater part of the world's intelligent workers have become irreligious or at least uninterested in religion. But is it astonishing How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his life? The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Church, by all means, and decent forms of amusement, certainly... But what use is all that if in the very center of his life and occupation he is insulting God with bad carpentry? No crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. Nor if they did could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth. No piety in the worker will compensate for work that is not true to itself. For any work that is untrue to its own technique is a living lie. And so God... In the light of your love for us, in the light of your greatness, in the light of your glory and your beauty and your goodness, God, may every woman and man in this room be commissioned into the work that you've called them to. May they make good tables. And may they trust you. May they love you. May they delight in you. And may they worship you. And may they wield their lives for the flourishing of the world. May they um, take all of the gifts, all of the skills, all of the knowledge, all of the opportunity that you've placed in front of them and wield them not just for their own kingdom, not for their own kingdom, not for their own name, not for their own glory, um, not, not simply for their own control or power, but God, may they wield all of those things for the good of others. In your name we pray. Amen. We'll see you tomorrow night.